Well, good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing today? I am James. I am one of the pastors here. Good to see the sun shining and the ice melting here in mid-Michigan. Before we jump back into our series on the Gospel of Mark, I just wanted to express my gratitude uh, for the way you have all cared for one another as a church family over the past couple of weeks. If you didn't get a chance to participate in one of our weekend services last Sunday. It was a very tearful and powerful time for many of us in the wake of the the shootings on MSU campus there. Our time of prayer uh, for John Howe and his family meant a great deal to them, honestly. And um, the love you expressed Our band leader, Josh, who was here last weekend, it had a significant impact on him as well. So thank you very much. Um, Let's keep praying for one another, looking for ways to meet practical needs and leaning in close uh, with those who are hurting during this season. This is just going to have an ongoing effect on so many of us in this community. And uh, let's continue to be with each other through that. If you're new to Riverview, or if you have missed part of our Mark series, let me uh, catch you up on where we are. Mark's gospel, just past halfway kind of through uh, your Bible, if you have a hard copy here, maybe two-thirds of the way through, um, is a narrative proclamation of the person and work and words of Jesus Christ. It's a series of stories that present a call to first believe in Jesus, put your faith in Jesus Christ, and then to devote every inch of your life sacrificially to becoming like Jesus and to proclaiming his name to the world. The first six and a half chapters, which is what we've covered already, uh, focus primarily on the ministry of Jesus and his disciples in and around an area called Galilee, which is right up here. There's the Sea of Galilee, and then that kind of reddish area. The whole uh, of those first six chapters pretty much takes place in those small towns like Capernaum and Cana and Nazareth. They're by the seashore. They're in and out of boats. They're climbing mountains. They're in remote places. Mark kind of chronicles the movements of Jesus in that geography. And in this first stage of Jesus' ministry, his main focus is on convincing Jewish people that he is the long-promised Messiah. That's why he spends a lot of time in synagogues, and this whole area is predominantly Jewish. It's not binary. There's other kinds of people who live there, but the worldview in those cities is primarily going to be populated with Jewish people. In chapters 7 and 8, which we're going to look at today, we see a shift. Jesus moves beyond Galilee, goes up to Tyra, Sidon. Uh, He comes down to the Decapolis and then back up to Caesarea Philippi. And then uh, just looking forward, the last seven chapters, chapters 10 through 16, are all down in Judea uh, until uh, eventually Jesus is arrested, crucified, and rises from the dead there in Jerusalem. So for today, we're going to be in that beyond Galilee area. In Mark chapter 7, verse 24, it says, Jesus got up and departed from there to the region of Tyra. 
Tyra is a port city uh, that is located 40 miles west of Galilee. It's an intentional choice for Jesus to take his disciples there. There's a 4,000-foot mountain between Galilee and Tyra that they would have probably gone around, Mount Moron. And Mark tells in, in um, uh, chapter 7 there of a, a, an encounter. The first person he encounters in Tyra is a Phoenician and Syrian woman named, uh, that, that, that is a Gentile. And she has a daughter who is possessed by a demon. And you can go read the story. Um, Jesus behaves very differently uh, in this kind of setting. He, he tries to keep his presence there a secret. And at first, he's reluctant to help this woman. And then he sees her faith. They have this little interaction. It's very beautiful. And, uh, and he helps her out. And, and this demon is removed from her daughter. And then he moves up the coast to Sidon there. And then around and through the Decapolis, again, uh, Decapolis just means 10 cities. It was 10 pagan kind of Greek cities. And that's where we're going to pick up today in Mark 7, 31. Uh, And we'll put the verses up here on the screen here if you want to follow along there as well. Again, leaving the region of Tyra, Jesus went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. So he took him away from the crowd in private. After putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak clearly. Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more they proclaimed it. They were extremely astonished and said, he has done everything well. He, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Okay, there's a lot going on here. And so uh, let's start with Jesus in, is in this Gentile city uh, of the Decapolis. They bring to him this deaf mute. And same thing as with the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, Jesus does not want people to know what he's about to do. It says he takes the, the guy away from the crowd in private. And then he orders them to tell no one. And of course, they're like, or we could just tell everyone. How about we just do the opposite of what Jesus said? That's always what happens. And secondly, and I think this is kind of the elephant in the room on this story, Jesus essentially gives this guy a wet willy. Um, Like, I'm trying to figure out what's up with Jesus, and he spits, like, literally on the guy, like, touches his tongue. Why is Jesus using his bodily fluid in the healing process, right, ew, is exactly right. Um, and I have no idea the answer to that question. I've read a few scholars from the first century the culture uh, that, that there were some who believed that saliva had healing power, both in the Jewish community and the Greek community. Maybe Jesus was signaling his desire that he was about to heal this guy. Very possible. Uh, we don't know. The third thing that pops out is Mark's use of this this unique word, ephaphtha. Ephaphtha in the uh, Bible dictionary, it says it's the Greek form 
of the Aramaic word that means be opened, which would make sense because this would be a Greek-speaking area. So Jesus actually adapts a, a, his own language into their language a little bit. Mark makes note of that. The root word for ephaphtha is the Hebrew word pathak. Pathak means to open. That word occurs hundreds of times across the Old Testament. One instance that's notable here is in Isaiah 35, starting in verse 3. It says, Strengthen the weak hands, steady the shaking knees, Say to the cowardly, be strong and do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Now that word there is literally the word Yeshua. He will save you. It just says, uh, vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. Jesus is basically what that word is. Then the eyes of the blind will be pathak, Opened and the ears of the deaf will be pathak. It's used twice there, opened. Then the lame will leap like deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Now this is a pretty amazing Bible verse considering the fact that this is 700 years before Jesus met this deaf mute man in the Decapolis. Isaiah told those who are weak those who are unsteady, those who are fearful that God's retribution is coming, that his name is Jesus, and that you'll know it's him when eyes and ears begin to be opened, when lame begin to walk, when tongues are loosened, which is exactly what happens in this story in Mark chapter 7. One commentator I read said this, he said, the little word ephaphtha sums up Christ's entire mission. Jesus became a man so that man made inwardly deaf and dumb and blind by sin would be able to hear God and testify to his power. When Jesus prays ephaphtha, not only were the literal ears of the deaf man open and his literal tongue loosened, but salvation was proclaimed. In fact, Isaiah says, here is your God. God is here. Jesus is saying, I am the promised Messiah. I'm here. The story continues in chapter eight, verse one. In those days, there was again, as always, a large crowd and they had nothing to eat. Jesus called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way. <laughs> They're like starving. They're hangry, these people, right? And some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered him, well, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked them. Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, so they served them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. They ate 
and were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha, which is back, uh, is back by the Sea of Galilee. Okay, now if you've been following along with our series, you're thinking, okay, didn't Jesus already feed a bunch of people? Are we, are we, why are we doing this story again? Actually, he did, just two chapters ago, uh, in chapter six, uh, but this is happening a second time. And so let's compare the two. Why does Mark include uh, these two stories? So in Mark chapter six, uh, it's, uh, it says that it was a remote place where they were. In Mark eight, it's a deserted place, very similar. In Mark six, it's near the Sea of Galilee, which is a predominantly Jewish area. In Mark eight, it's in the Decapolis, a Gentile area. Mark six, it's 5,000 people. Mark 8, it's 4,000 people. Either way, that's a lot of people. Five loaves in Mark 6, seven loaves in Mark 8. In both cases, everyone ate and was satisfied. And then in Mark 6, there were 12 leftover baskets. And in Mark 8, there were seven leftover baskets. Now, is any of this important, these numbers and these details? It's actually, I think, more significant than... You might guess. Check out what happens next. Hang on to this now, because look at what happens in verse 13. It says, Then Jesus left them, (coughs) excuse me, got back into the boat, and he went to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Uh, which is interesting because Jesus had just, just multiplied this bread. They had so many baskets left over, and then they left them behind, I guess. Then Jesus gave them strict orders, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. (coughs) And so a leavening agent, uh, like yeast, is a leavening agent. If you've ever bought yeast, it's those very small little flakes, right? It's a small cell that causes bread to expand into something large. And it seems like the, the warning Jesus is giving here to the disciples is uh, he's talking about the dangers of the false teachings of the Pharisees and of Herod. Uh, th- those might seem subtle and insignificant, what the, the Pharisees and, and Herod are teaching, but eventually over time, they expand and they, they blow up into confusion and lack of belief and calloused hearts, Right. And so the disciples aren't making the connection. Jesus is talking about spiritual bread and spiritual leaven and spiritual hunger. And they're like, we're hungry. We don't have any bread. And so Jesus gets really frustrated, actually. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Right? Don't you understand or comprehend Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? We like we just went over this, is kind of the idea. When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? And they're like, twelve. 
When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? And they're like, seven. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? And their response is like the one that most of your faces have, right? Like, like no, I don't, I don't. <laughs> um, what's, what, what are you talking about, Jesus, right? There's something Jesus is trying to convey to his disciples. They're not able to see, hear, and remember. And I think the phrase, do you have eyes and not see, and do you have ears and not hear, is, is the key here. You remember when you were a kid and your mom would say, okay, James, go clean up your room. And you go, okay, mom. And then 20 minutes later, when you still hadn't moved from the couch, she would come and say, James, go, a little more force, a little more mom sharpness in the voice, right? Go clean up your room, James, right? And then you'd be like, mom, I heard you the first, like you'd get annoyed with her, <laughs> right? You heard what she said, but you didn't do it. When you see or hear truth and you don't take action, when your life doesn't conform to that truth, that's having ears and not hearing, having eyes and not seeing. So often we see or hear things. We know, we know things but we don't actually understand enough to do what we're seeing or hearing. Now, this phrase, it's a very common Hebrew idiom, and it's used frequently in the Old Testament. In fact, all three of the major prophets use this phrase, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Isaiah 6 is a, a really good example of this. This is verse 8. <clears throat> then I, this is Isaiah speaking, heard the voice of the Lord asking who will I send? This is a very famous passage. Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I said, here I am, send me. And God replied, go, say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Then I, Isaiah says, until when, Lord? And he replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, and the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Now, this is really odd, right? God is essentially saying to Isaiah, for the first part of your prophetic ministry, because of their hard hearts, my people are going to be clueless about who I am. They can listen and look all they want, but they're going to remain spiritually deaf, dumb, and blind, and that's kind of the way I want it, which is really odd, right? They're going to have eyes to see but they won't see ears, but they won't hear. Wouldn't God want his people to listen to Isaiah and heed his warnings? Isn't that why you send a prophet in the first place? It's a strange kind of idea there. And it's similar to what's happening in the gospel of Mark. For the first half of Mark's gospel, whenever Jesus has an opportunity to heal one of these Gentiles, he wants it to stay very private he doesn't want this thing to blow up right away. 
He specifically instructs, don't tell anyone. I'm taking these people away in private. And it's like, well, wouldn't Jesus want everyone to know who he is immediately, like all the time? Isn't that why he came? And here's the thing. Sometimes God's ways are difficult for us to understand. He often has timing and a plan and a sequence that is, is honestly, if we were to try to put our finger on it, we would go, that is a complete head scratcher to me. <laughs> I have no idea. Wouldn't God want this person that I have been praying for for years to immediately come to faith in him? Wouldn't he want their eyes to open for them to get it, right? Their hearts. And the disciples are just as confused. They have eyes and ears, but don't see and hear. Maybe you've been there wondering, why is God doing what he's doing in the timing that he's doing it? It doesn't make sense. What's the plan here? And so Jesus explains. I just picture them like circled up, and he's like on a knee. He's like, okay, guys, I'm going to say this one more time, and you better get it this time because I have said it so many times. Okay, here we go. Let's go over this again. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000s, how many baskets were left over? And they're like, 12. And he's like, right. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000s, how many baskets? And they're like, seven. He's like, right. You got it? And they're like, no. It's interesting how Jesus knows the exact numbers. How many loaves, how many people, all of that. How much was left over? There's meaning here. So I read a bunch of the commentators about this. Here's the consensus. And this is kind of the way I land on it. I think it makes a ton of sense. Let's see if it makes sense to you. This is the oversimplified version. Here's our comparison of the two stories. Jesus first breaks bread for 5,000 Jewish people. 12 baskets are left over. The nation of Israel has 12 tribes. Jesus is saying, there's enough to feed all of the Jews now and going forward. Then he breaks bread for 4,000 Gentile people. Seven ba uh, baskets left over. Seven is the biblical number that represents completion, right? And it's also the number of pagan nations that inhabited the promised land when the Jews came into the promised land way back in the book of Joshua, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to possess. He drives out the many nations, the Hethites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, lots of ites, right? Seven nations more numerous and powerful than you. Jesus is saying, I, I am sufficient for all the Gentiles now and going forward. Why are you worried about bread? I'm here. I am the bread of life. Open your eyes. Open your ears. Open your hearts. I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 Jews to show that I'm going to be broken for every single Jew throughout all of history. I broke the seven, uh, seven loaves for 4,000 Gentiles to show that I'm gonna be broken for every single Gentile going forward. I'm sufficient. I'm gonna be broken for everyone. 
so that everyone can have eternal life through me. Don't you get that? Why are you worried about bread? I'm here. And then watch what happens next. I mean, Jesus is just the best. If you look at verse 22, this is the perfect kind of bow on the, on the, on the end of this story. They came to Bethsaida. Now that's back by the Sea of Galilee. They brought a blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes. What in the world is Jesus doing with the spitting? I don't get it. Spitting on his eyes. He spit on the guy's eyes. That's weird. And laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? The guy looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus just got through rebuking his disciples for having eyes but not seeing in a spiritual sense. And now he has, comes across a guy who has literal eyes that cannot see. He's physically blind. Isn't this, this is so powerful. Jesus touches the guy and, and, and spits on him. And he says, do you see anything? And the guy says, well, yeah, I see something. It's people that look like trees walking. Now he has eyes to see, but he isn't seeing clearly. And after Jesus touches him a second time, the man looks intently and everything becomes clear. Mark brings us full circle. This is a beautiful arc in the story. He begins with a story about a Gentile man who has ears but literally cannot hear. And he can't speak, and Jesus heals the guy. He ends with a story about a Jewish man who has eyes but literally can't see, and Jesus heals that guy. And in between, Jesus provides bread for everyone, from Jew to Gentile, opening hearts, eyes, ears, and lips. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples. Don't you remember don't you remember? We just went through this, right? I think so often we live in a space where we don't remember. We, we know things, but we don't live as though we know them. We see, but we don't see. We listen, but we don't really understand. We don't do. Our lives don't conform to the truths that we say we know. And then Jesus comes along and says, Ephaphtha, be opened. Let your hearts, your ears, your eyes be opened. Loosen your tongue. Look intently, dig deeper so that you may see, hear, remember, and proclaim what's really true. Now let's remember three truths together 
this morning as we leave, and then we will close in prayer. First, ask the Lord to ephaphtha, open your heart. Jesus, the bread of life, broke himself for everyone, which means he broke himself for you. Is your soul in a remote, desolate place? Do you have a lingering sense of dissatisfaction in your heart? Are you ready to collapse from a hunger you can't seem to satisfy, a spiritual hunger? Jesus came so that hearts would be opened. Because of Jesus, the bread of life, everyone, it says, in both stories, ate and was satisfied. Jesus not only provided, he fulfilled. Is today the day to open your heart to Jesus, the only one who provides eternal satisfaction? Secondly, Ephaphtha, ask the Lord to open your eyes. One of the clearest ways we know that we're living the way of Jesus, that we're seeing the world through God's eyes is how we view people. Are they like trees walking around? Indistinct from one another? Obstacles in our way of our own agenda? As followers of Jesus, we must be willing to look intently past that first glance, right? Sometimes I think eyes to see, but have you ever walked past somebody and then like you're 20 feet past them, you're like, wait a minute, I knew that person. And it like doesn't register until you're, you ever had that happen? Here's the truth. Every single person in this room walked in here with a story. Every single person in here walked in here with a heart, with thoughts, with a perspective that we have an opportunity to just kind of see trees or to look intently for what's really happening. If there is a person in front of you, that person was created by God. He or she is loved by God. That is a person that Jesus Christ died for. Lord, open our eyes, restore our sight. Let us see clearly so that we can love others as you have loved us. And then lastly, ask the Lord to open your ears and loosen your tongue. The clearest way to hear God is through the wisdom of his word, right? And to really hear means to do, right? It's one thing to read the Bible and say, this is interesting. It's another thing for your life to conform to the truth that is found within and for you to turn around. And I love that Isaiah passage, just this, this, the tongue just is joyously unleashed. Loosen your tongue and proclaim God's word. Now, Jesus keeps moving. It says he went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. On the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And that's where we're gonna pick up our story next week, Mark. We're gonna walk with Mark up to Caesarea Philippi, and that's a, a powerful passage there. Let's pray. Lord, we know that 
our eyes and ears and hearts uh, really only open because of the power of your spirit, the wisdom of your word. We pray for your intervention here this morning for anyone in this room that does not yet know you, that doesn't see clearly that you would pierce their heart for the people in our lives that we pray for, our family members, our friends, our neighbors. Open their hearts, Lord, and then give us eyes to see people as they really are, to look intently, to see behind, to see underneath, to know the story, to share your love and empathy with folks, and then give us ears to hear and tongues to proclaim the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.